0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we are going to begin a new series this morning, a Christmas series, and we will be in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11, and then we will uh, focus our attention this morning on verses 6 and 7. So, Philippians chapter 2, and uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 980 and 981. Philippians chapter 2, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this blessing and opportunity to gather together as Your church to worship You this morning. We thank You for the songs that we have sung and the scriptures that we have heard read, the time that we've spent together in prayer. And Lord, we pray that as we turn to Your Word now that You would meet with us, that You would teach us and instruct us, that You would change and transform us. Father, we thank You for the truthfulness of Your Word, and we thank You for the power of Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that You would now speak to us clearly through Your Word for the glory of Your name. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, have you ever mistaken a person for someone else? Maybe you see someone across the way, and you start to wave, and they're not really waving back, and so you wave with a little more purpose, and then you realize, actually, I don't know that person, and you just kind of sheepishly put down your hand and move on. Or maybe you're in a big group of people and you turn around and you say, Oh, Cindy, hey, it's great to see you. And then even as the words are coming out of your mouth, you realize that's not Cindy and I don't know who this person is. Small children do this as well, right? So they're maybe running around, playing, having fun, and the person in front of them seems to be about the height of their dad and maybe have a similar body shape, and so they just run with all they have up to this man, and they throw their arms around his leg, right? And they look up, and then in a moment of terror, they realize, this is not my dad, and I have no idea who this stranger is. Well, our Christmas series this year is entitled, O oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. Of course, him refers to Jesus. But the question that we all have to answer is, who is Jesus? You see, if you mistake a person for someone that they're not, it can be uncomfortable, it can be embarrassing with some time and distance, it can even be funny. But if you mistake who Jesus is, it's tragic. And God doesn't want us to miss out on who Jesus is. That's the reason God sent Jesus into this world. That's the reason why He gives us His Word that tells us about His birth and His life and tells us who Jesus is, because God doesn't want us to miss out on Jesus. Through the month of December, we are going to be spending time working through Philippians chapter 2. And each week, we will be answering this question Who is Jesus? This week, we're going to focus on the idea of the divinity of Jesus. Next week, on the humanity of Jesus. The following week, on the humility of Jesus. And then finally, on the worship of Jesus. We start this morning by considering the divinity of Jesus. And this is the truth that we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus is God in the flesh. That in the birth of Jesus, God the Son took on flesh and He dwelt among us. So this week, as I mentioned earlier, I want us to focus on two verses that we see here in our text, verse 6 and verse 7. You see it there. Who though He, and He here is referring to Christ Jesus at the end of verse 5, who though He, though Christ Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, from this text, I want us to see three truths regarding the divinity of Jesus, and then I want to make one application. So, three truths regarding the divinity of Jesus, and then one application. Now, the first, well, three truths, first of all, regarding the divinity of Jesus. Let me say this before we look at each one. We live in a secular society. We live in a society, that is, that feels increasingly uncomfortable with and sometimes outright denies the supernatural. And in a secular society, people are inclined to deny the deity of Jesus, that is, that He is God, and they tend to overemphasize the humanity of Jesus, You see, anything that's supernatural, that's miraculous, makes people feel uncomfortable. Perhaps folks outright deny the miraculous, that it's even possible. And so the idea that Jesus is God is is repulsive in some ways. They deny that. They resist that. But they're more inclined to overemphasize the humanity of Jesus. David Wells, in his book entitled The Person of Christ, talks about an understanding of Jesus that is from below And an understanding of Jesus that is from above. So an understanding of Jesus that is from below is man-made. It's humanly conceived. It's man's thoughts and ideas and opinions about who Jesus might have been. But an understanding of Jesus from above is God-revealed. It's derived from God's Word. It's God revealing to us in His Word who Jesus is. Listen to David Wells describe an understanding of Jesus from below. He says, quote, "...such a Christ must be as fallible as we are, as confused, as filled with doubts, as unsure about the future, as agnostic about the purposes and plans of God, as diffident about the possibilities of knowing God." and is baffled about the ethical norms and the possibility of moral absolutes. They, and here he's referring to Christ from below, that is Christ that are originated, created out of the opinions and minds of men, they are constructed on the mistaken assumption that a Christ who is as baffled as we are about existence, who is as secular as we are, who is the victim of change and circumstances as we feel ourselves to be, is somehow more appealing than the one who is not. These Christ are impotent. They are without power. And their appeal is superficial. End of quote. Well, in contrast, the Bible offers us an understanding of Jesus that is from above. And of course, yes, the Bible does reveal to us that Jesus is human, and we affirm this truth and do not deny it. In fact, we will be considering the humanity of Jesus more fully next week. But at the same time, the Bible reveals to us that Jesus is divine. He is God. So notice these three truths about the divinity of Jesus in our text. The first truth is this, that Jesus Fully expresses the essence of God. Jesus fully expresses the essence of God. Now, that wording that I'm using there, I got from Dr. Stephen Wellam, who wrote a book entitled God the Incarnate Son, which I read uh, in part in preparation for this series, is very helpful. But you see this idea, Jesus fully expresses the essence of God in verse 6 of our text. Paul writes there, who though he was in the form of God. Now that word form there in the original language is the word morphe. And scholars tell us here that this word morphe refers to, quote, that form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. Let me read that again. The word there, morphe, refers to that form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. Now, notice that this word form is not only used in verse 6, but it's also used in verse 7. So if we consider how it's used in verse 7, it gives us better insight into how Paul is thinking about this word and how he is using it. Look there in the text. You see there in verse 6, who though Christ was in the form of God, so there's the first use of the word, Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, here's the second use, by taking the form, same word, morphe, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So in other words, whatever it means to be in the form of God in verse 6 is analogous to what it means to be in the form of man in verse 7. So they're parallel expressions or form of a servant. So what does it mean that Jesus was in the form of a servant? Well, it means that whatever is true regarding the essential qualities of a servant were true regarding Jesus because Jesus truly and fully expressed what it meant to be a servant. So what does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? Well, it means that whatever is true regarding the essential qualities and character of God were true regarding Jesus because Jesus truly and fully expressed what it means to be God. Sam Storms, another author, he states it this way, "Quote. "...the point is that Jesus is holy and truly man, even as He is holy and truly God. Whatever is essential to human nature, whatever constitutes human form, is true of Jesus." Likewise, whatever is essential of the divine nature, whatever constitutes divine form, is true of Jesus as well, end of quote. So Paul here uses this word morphe, he uses this word form to communicate the idea that Jesus truly and fully expresses the essence of God. Second truth, second truth we see here in our text regarding the divinity of Jesus Jesus existed before He was born. Jesus existed before He was born. Look there in verses 6 and 7. Who though He, again referring to Christ Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, you see obviously that the logic here in this passage is that Jesus existed in the form of God, prior to the fact that he was born as a man. And so here, Paul is clearly acknowledging the pre-existence of Jesus. In other words, prior to Jesus' miraculous conception in Mary's womb, prior to his subsequent birth, Jesus existed as the Son of God from eternity past. And he was born into this world as a man, namely, the man Jesus. Now this is important because there are many who would insist that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was finally a man. Some might say, well, He was divine in one sense. Maybe Jesus was divine in the sense that perhaps more than anyone else in all of human history, He showed us what God is like. He showed us what it would be like to be a man who is like God. And in this sense, there is some spark of the divine in Jesus. And listen, we have to acknowledge that at one level, that's a very exalted view of Jesus. But do you see here from the Apostle Paul that it does not go nearly far enough? As one author frames it, listen to this. Jesus was not a man through whom God was revealing Himself. Jesus was God revealing Himself as a man. Let me state that again. Jesus was not a man through whom God was revealing Himself. That would be like maybe one of the prophets of the Old Testament, right? Rather, Jesus was God revealing Himself as a man. We could say it this way as well. Jesus was not a man who became God. He didn't grow into divinity. Jesus was God who became a man. So the pre-existence of Jesus means that Jesus existed as the Son of God from eternity past, prior to His physical conception or birth. And His pre-existence is further evidence of His divinity. So, we see that Jesus fully expresses the essence of God. We see the second truth, that Jesus existed before He was born. And then the third truth we see here regarding the divinity of Jesus is that Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is equal with God. Look there in verse 6 again, we read these words. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now again, we go back to this question, what does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? And if we read a little bit further in the verse, it becomes increasingly clear. Because notice that the second half of the verse contains a parallel statement that defines what it means to be in the form of God. Paul writes there, notice there in verse 6, that Jesus was in the form of God And here's the parallel statement. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So to possess equality with God defines what it means to be in the form of God. They are synonymous with one another. He was in the form of God, and what does that mean? He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. As the ancient Christian confession declares the Nicene Creed, quote, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God. Paul is declaring here that Jesus is equal with God. So these are... Three truths that we see in our text regarding the divinity of Jesus. First, Jesus fully expresses the essence of God. Second, Jesus existed before He was born. Third, Jesus is equal with God. And my friends, understand this. This is is the reason why biblical Orthodox Christians have consistently maintained That groups that deny the divinity of Jesus cannot meaningfully call themselves Christians. In fact, if you pursue the beliefs of just about any cult, you will find that this is one area where they consistently go astray. It's regarding the person of Jesus. And biblical Orthodox Christians throughout the centuries have declared that their understanding of Jesus is so at odds with what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus that they have really, in fact, created, developed a new religion, a different religion, but it cannot in any meaningful sense be called biblical Christianity. So these are three truths that we see in our text regarding the divinity of Jesus. Now I want to make one application, okay? And the one application is this. Confess and submit. Confess and submit. Confess that Jesus is God and submit to Him as Lord. I want to actually illustrate this application from the Gospel of John Actually, even in our liturgy this morning through the service, we've read the Gospel of John and we've heard references to it, I think through some of the songs we've been singing and so forth. The Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It tells the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And one of the things that's very interesting about the Gospel of John is that John structures his entire book, he structures the Gospel of John, to demonstrate that Jesus is God and to call us to submit to Him as Lord. So, let me me show this to you. I was recently reading the opening verses of John's Gospel with some friends here from church. And as many of you know, and we read it this morning, Shane read it for us, uh, the Gospel of John opens by speaking of Jesus as the eternal Word of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. So let me just read again for you the first four verses of John chapter 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here, in the opening verses of John's gospel, we see a number of truths regarding the person of Jesus that Paul has already taught us in Philippians chapter 2, right? So John here, in many ways, just confirming what we've already seen in Philippians 2. Let me just point out a few things. John tells us in John chapter 1 that the Word was preexistent, that He was eternal. So in verse 1, John opens up, in the beginning was the Word. He was in the beginning. And in addition to that, John goes on to tell us that the Word is distinct from God the Father. That He is His own person. So, John goes on to say in the opening verses of John chapter 1, the Word was with God. He goes on in verse 2 to say he was in the beginning with God. So he was with him. He was alongside him. he He was beside him. He was in relationship with him. There was a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. This kind of language in the Bible has led to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. That there is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in relationship with one another. John also tells us in these opening verses of John chapter 1 that the Word was and is God. So verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I don't think you'll find any more clear statement regarding the divinity of Jesus in all the Bible than that one statement there. So this is how John opens his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the first verse in John's Gospel. And John is telling us, this is where I'm going. This is what I want you to know. And then we start reading the Gospel of John. And what we find is that over and over again, we see Jesus speaking these I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. For example, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Or in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Or in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And why is this important? Well, because each of these I am statements are intended to remind us of God's name. Jesus is invoking the name of God and he's applying it to himself. Some of you might say, well, where is the, how does this refer to the name of God? Well, one of the most important events in the Old Testament Scriptures is God's revelation of Himself to Moses. God comes to Moses and He tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses doesn't want to do it. He thinks this is a bad idea. And so he gives the Lord a list of reasons why he shouldn't do it. And at one point, Moses says to the Lord, Who will I say sent me? What if they ask me your name? And God responds to Moses, I am who I am. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, we read that God says to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this declaration becomes the basis for the personal name of God in the Bible. I am who I am. It's the name Yahweh in Hebrew. Now perhaps Jesus' most striking account, or the most striking account of Jesus personally applying the name of God to Himself is found in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in a confrontation with the Jews and Jesus declares to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews respond, they say to Jesus, like, this just blows their minds, right? They can't put this together. This is not computing. They say, you are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? You see, Abraham lived some 2,000 years before Jesus was ever born. And John records Jesus' response in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus responds to the Jews by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, notice what Jesus is doing here in this statement. He's, a couple of things are happening. Before Abraham, who lived 2,000 years ago, before Abraham was, I am. One thing Jesus is doing here is He is appealing to His pre-existence. 2,000 years ago, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And before Abraham was even in existence, I am. The other thing that He is doing is He is taking the name of God, the personal name of God revealed to Moses in the Old Testament, and he is applying it to himself. And listen, just in case, you, maybe you're wondering, were well, are we reading too much into this passage? Maybe we're thinking things that Jesus wasn't thinking. Maybe we're just trying to get too much out of this. No, we know we're reading the text right, because in the very next verse we read that the Jews picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple. Now why would they have picked up stones to throw at Jesus? Because they understood the implications of what Jesus was saying. They understood that as Jesus said before, Abraham was, I am. He was claiming pre-existence and He was appealing to the divine name and applying it to Himself. He was claiming to be God. And they understood it, at least from their perspective, to be blasphemy. And so they determined to stone him. So here's John's gospel. He opens up with this statement. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is where I'm going. That's what he wants you to know. And then throughout the gospel we get these I am statements repeated over and over and over again. Kind of the crescendo in some ways of these I am statements. Jesus' reference to Abraham. Before Abraham was I am. But that's not all. Then, then John ends his gospel with the confession of Thomas. Thomas, of course, was one of Jesus' disciples. He has come to be known as Doubting Thomas because when Thomas received the news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he refused to believe it. In John chapter 20, verse 25, Thomas says, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, in a moment of tremendous grace and mercy, about a week later, Jesus does, in fact, appear to Thomas. And Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And in John chapter 20, verse 28, we read, Thomas answered him. And this is Thomas' response as he sees the resurrected Christ standing before him. This is Thomas' response. My Lord and my God. And Jesus does not correct him. He does not rebuke him. He does not say, Oh, Thomas, you've gone too far. You've misunderstood. Rather, Jesus Commends him. In the very next verse we read, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, do you see these are the bookends of John's gospel? Right? John's gospel begins in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the Word, was God. And then he ends his gospel in John chapter 20 with Thomas confessing, my Lord and my God. And do you know the very next verse that comes after Thomas's confession? It's the purpose statement for John's gospel. The very next verse in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John records, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, Which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So there's the confession of Thomas, and then John follows that up by saying, This is the whole reason I wrote the book. I wrote this book. So that you might believe like Thomas believed, so that you might see what Thomas saw, so that you might confess what Thomas confessed, so that you might come to the realization that Jesus is Lord and He is God and that you would submit to Him. And so, my friends, the question for all of us this, this morning is how about you? Have you believed? Have you believed that Jesus is God, that He is the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us? Have you believed that He died on the cross and paid a penalty for your sins that you could never pay and was raised from the dead so that you might have eternal life? Some of you here this morning might say, well, I've never believed that before. I don't know if I could believe that. I've had my doubts in the past and I've been confused about who Jesus is. Do you see that John has structured his entire gospel to climax at a point in which the most skeptical of all the disciples of Jesus came to believe that Jesus is both Lord and God? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, my friends, you can as well. You may have doubted in the past. You may have denied Him in the past. But like Thomas, you can confess that He is God and submit to Him as Lord. And in so doing, like Thomas, you can become an example to others of what it means to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. May we all do so. May we acknowledge the Lord Jesus as God, and may we submit to Him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and we thank You for how Your Word reveals to us the truth of who Jesus is. We confess, Lord, that there is much confusion in our own day about who Jesus is, and Father, we want, we want to have an understanding of Jesus that is from above. We thank You that You have given us that understanding in Your Word. And Father, I pray that this Christmas season we would acknowledge Christ to be who He is, both Lord and God, that we would confess this to be true, but not only confess it, but that we would trust Him and submit to Him, that we would follow Him with all our lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.